0: During the early 1990s, Rwanda's population of 7 million people was composed of two major ethnic groups. 85% were Hutu and 14% were Tutsi. There was growing unrest between these groups as the Hutu remembered past years of oppressive Tutsi rule. And many of them not only resented, but feared the minority on April 6, 1994, a plane carrying the president, who was Hutu, was shot down and that event triggered violence, which started the very next day. And under the cover of war, Hutu extremists launched their plans to destroy the entire Tutsi population. Tutsi were killed in their homes and at roadblocks that were set up across the country as they tried to flee. Entire families were killed at one time. It's estimated that 200,000 people were part of carrying out this atrocity. The Hutu gang searched out victims hiding in churches and school buildings, and they massacred them. Most of the victims were killed in their own village, their very own town, often by their neighbors and fellow villagers. Over the next 100 days, it is estimated that 800,000 men women, and children perished in the Rwandan genocide. In the years following, there's been an ongoing national effort toward reconciliation between the victims and their offenders. And there are lots and lots of stories, incredible stories of reconciliation. Seven of them are told in what looks like a really good book called As We Forgive, Stories of Reconciliation from Rwanda. Well, last year, last year was the 20th anniversary of the genocide. And in cooperation with a non-profit organization that was working in Rwanda, the New York Times Magazine sent a journalist and a photographer to capture stories of victims and perpetrators of this genocide who had since come together and had been reconciled. One such story is that of Francis and Epiphany, Francis says this, because of the genocide perpetrated in 1994, I participated in the killing of the son of this woman. But we're now members of the same group of unity and reconciliation. We share in everything. If she needs some water to drink, I fetch some for her. There's no suspicion between us, whether under sunlight or during the night. And when we are together... We're like brother and sister. No suspicion between us. Epiphany says, He killed my child. Then he came to ask me pardon. I immediately granted it to him. Before, when I had not yet granted him pardon, he could not come close to me. I treated him like an enemy. But now? Now I would rather treat him like my own child. These stories of reconciliation between people are powerful and they're amazing. But there's a story of reconciliation that's even more incredible. Reconciliation between people and God. I invite you to the text that Mason just read, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And just for what it's worth, for your information... We don't land here this morning. I didn't choose this passage randomly. Over the past couple years, as I've had opportunities to preach, some of you may know this, but some of you may not, I've been working through this letter. So today, this is the next passage, and, and so that's why we're here. Reconciliation is the theme of this passage before us this morning, and we're going to look at three points. First, God is the author of reconciliation. Second, Christ Jesus is the agent of reconciliation. And then last, we are the ambassadors of reconciliation. But before we jump in and look at this text carefully, it's important to remember that the main thing that Paul is doing in the letter of 2 Corinthians is defending his ministry. Paul started the church in Corinth, and then a few years after he started it, he left and it, it was through correspondence with the church there and news that would come back to him it was apparent that some in the church were calling his ministry into question and were beginning to actually follow false teachers guys that were really flashy really really impressive but they were teaching a different gospel so in his continued effort to defend his ministry paul reflects in these verses on the role his apostleship plays in God's redemptive plan. The Corinthians could only appreciate and accept Paul's ministry to them when they understood it as part of God's work to reconcile the world. So, in this passage, Paul is striving to establish God's work of reconciliation as the basis of his own ministry of reconciliation. So, with that lead in, we then consider our first point, and that is that God is the author of reconciliation. We see that here in verses 18 and 19. Reflecting on the, the new creation in verse 17, Paul says, All this is from God. It's from Him who, through Christ, reconciled us to Himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Verse 19, in Christ. God was reconciling the world to Himself. So, Paul in the New Testament, Paul is the only author to use the noun reconciliation and the verb reconcile. Ten times in total. And whenever the verb is used in the active voice, Christ or God is always the subject. So, He is the one reconciling. And whenever it's used in the passive voice, humans are always the subject humans are being reconciled so in other words god reconciles and man is reconciled this reconciliation assumes broken relationship alienation and dissatisfaction but the problem is not with god as if he were some cruel taskmaster from from whom humans rebelled no, it's our rebellion. Our rebellion's what created the problem. Our sin incited God's wrath. And it was our sinful condition that had to be dealt with before there could be any reconciliation. It's perhaps not overly natural for us to see it this way. As Haifman says very well, In our day of self-help and age of technology and technique, it's important to keep in mind that God is both the initiator and the object of this reconciliation. Our propensity is to view the gospel as our opportunity to reconcile God to us by showing Him how much we love Him, rather than seeing it as God's act in Christ by which He reconciles us to Himself by demonstrating His own love for us. The Gospel does not call us to do something for God that He might save us. It announces what God has done to save us, that we might trust Him. In William Temple's memorable phrase, he says, All is of God. The only thing of my very own which I contribute to my redemption is the sin from which I need to be redeemed in our open revolt against God, while we were still enemies, God took the initiative. He moved towards us in love to end the hostility and bring about peace. God took the initiative and provided a way for us to be reconciled to Him. The peace here is not simply a cessation of hostilities, right? There's a form of peace that is just not fighting. This isn't it. It's not simply an uneasy truce. No, this piece is the mending of the broken relationship as God radically changes our status from that of enemy to that of friend. God can never be reconciled to sin, but He does not turn away from sinners in disgust. And He does not leave them what they deserve. Rather, God takes the initiative and offers a way for us to be reconciled to Him. How? How is this possible? We find the answer in our second point, And that is that Jesus Christ is the agent of reconciliation. Jesus is the agent of reconciliation. We see that here in verses 18 and 19. It's from God who through Christ reconciled us to Himself. Verse 19, In Christ, God was reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them. It's incredible. Think of this. Our transgressions. Okay, Here's what our transgressions are. They're not only our breaking of God's law, but it's our creating our own laws. Okay, that it involves both of those things. Our transgressions, that sin created what seems to be an unbridgeable gap between us and God. It's a really big deal. But in Christ, Paul says, God wipes clean the register of sin through Christ's death. We could say that the files containing the record of offenses Has been deleted. How is it? How how can God just click on delete and gone? Transgressions gone? We know, after all, that God is holy, and therefore sin, our transgressions, incur His holy wrath. But God is also just, and therefore He can't simply overlook an offense. And if he sees it, he can't go easy and just kind of treat it lightly. So how can God in Christ not count men's sins against them? How can God reconcile men to Himself? And we see the answer here. The answer is given to us in verse 21. For our own sake... He made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. There it is. We see it there. We need to understand as we begin to think through this verse what it means that Christ became sin for us. That that phrase ought to kind of jar you a little bit. Whoa. Christ? Became sin. We need to understand what this means. On a basic level, sin may be considered as a moral quality that is inherited at conception. Right? So we're all sinful by nature. Yes. Even all the cute little babies that stood up here this morning, they're little sinners. They're they're guilty. They're, They're sinful by nature. We also know that sin is the act. It's the carrying out of that nature, the act of violating God's will. And in that respect, we are all sinners. But in neither of these senses can it be said that Jesus was made sin for us. See, Jesus neither possessed a nature infected by sin. He was not sinful. Nor did he commit any sin. He was not a sinner. But sin can also be considered in its legal aspect, principally as guilt. So so sin can also be considered and seen as the liability to suffer the punitive consequences of sin. And it was in this sense. It was in this sense then that Jesus was made to be sin on our behalf. One commentator summarized this very well. He said, Christ experienced the consequences for human sin. The one who lived a sinless life died a sinner's death. Estranged from God and the object of wrath, He was treated as a sinner in His death. As Paul put it in Galatians 3, Christ became a curse for us. Through his death on the cross. And his death, his death on the cross as the sacrifice for sin, indicates that the shed blood of Christ is the means by which God fulfills the need for atonement or payment for sin, which we see a graphic preview of all throughout the Old Testament sacrificial system. We're we're seeing there a preview that sin must be paid for, sin must be atoned. There's a price. Blood must be shed. And in His death, as the perfect, sinless Lamb of God, Jesus paid the penalty for sin. And because the payment for our sin was made, since God's holy and just wrath for sin was poured out on Christ, He remains just. He continues to be a just judge. But we see here in verse 21 that, that not only does God take away our sin in Christ, but He also gives us His righteousness. He also gives us His righteousness. He takes our sin, but He gives us His righteousness. Our sin is traded for Christ's righteousness. You see, we took the test of obedience. How do we do? How do we do on the test of obedience? Not so good. We all failed. A big, fat, juicy F. What does an F deserve? An F, in God's eyes, deserves judgment and wrath. Christ also took the test of obedience. He did better. He did a lot better. Jesus passed the test. A plus. 100%. And out of sheer undeserved grace, God credits Christ's perfect grade to us. And He puts our F on Christ. So Christ gets the wrath we deserve and we get the blessing and favor that Christ deserves. God's justice is satisfied. And we receive reconciliation through this great exchange after which... There is not only an absence of sin, just as if I never sinned, but there's also the presence of perfect goodness before God, just as if I'd always obeyed. So when God sees us in Christ, He doesn't see our sin. It was all put on Christ. Rather, He sees the perfections of Christ already been granted to us as a gift. Morris says that this truth means more than being pardoned. The pardoned criminal bears no penalty, but he bears a stigma. He's a criminal, and known as a criminal, albeit an unpunished one. But the justified sinner not only bears no penalty, he is righteous. He is not a man with his sins still about him. This truth is expressed so beautifully in the song we sang before the sermon. His robes for mine, what a wonderful exchange. Clothed in my sin, Christ suffered neath God's rage. Draped in His righteousness, I'm justified. In Christ I live, for in my place He died. What a great exchange. What a glorious exchange exchange this is as we think about this truth, what Paul's saying here, we'd be missing it altogether, I think, to explain it and even admire God's work of reconciliation without considering the fact that that this calls for a response. this calls for a human response. So, so God has taken the initiative in Christ, to bring us back into right relationship with Him. But we must respond to this gracious and loving act in two ways. First of all, we must repent of the sin that separates us from God. I I wonder this morning, do you consider yourself to be a sinner? Do you? If so, how do you define your sin? How do you see it? It's very rare today, I think, for people to see their sin as an offense against God. I heard recently this past week that only 17% of Americans define sin in relation to God. And this is why people don't feel the need for reconciliation. In in our world today, most people will readily affirm that they're not perfect and have done a few stupid things here and there in their life that might have not been so nice to people. Some people go beyond that and even are willing to admit that they're a sinner. But, But what's rare is a vertical dimension to their definition of sin. Because the image of God they have created in their own minds is very different from who God really is. As ably noted by DeYoung, God's word reveals a personal God, described among other things as a father, as a husband, and as a king. And He's a personal God who's infinitely holy and therefore utterly intolerant of sin. Therefore, God is personally offended when we violate His will. When we sin, we are rejecting our father's advice, we're spurring our husband's love, and we're disobeying our king's command. So if if you don't sense your separation from God and need for reconciliation, consider the possibility that you either don't know or don't believe in who God really is. Sin is a personal personal offense. And therefore, it demands personal reconciliation. So, So, there is no hope for reconciliation with God unless you first see all of your offense against God for what it truly is and repent of your sin. Second, reconciliation with God requires us to trust in Christ's death on the cross as the only payment for our sin. We must believe through faith in Christ's sacrifice to pay for our sin. And we must believe in His righteousness as our righteousness as the only basis whatsoever for acceptance by God. So have you. Have you repented of your personal offense against God? Have you accepted His payment for your sin and His gift of perfect righteousness? Have you been reconciled to God? I can't know your hearts. I I can't know the answer to that question for you. But I can, with Paul, implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. In chapter 6, verse 2, Paul says, In a favorable time I listened to you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you. He's quoting here from the Old Testament prophet Isaiah. And like Isaiah, Paul is announcing God's final deliverance. But unlike Isaiah, for whom deliverance was still to come, Paul is announcing that deliverance is here. Salvation has arrived in Jesus Christ. So so if you have not been reconciled to God, look now is the favorable time. Look now is the day of salvation. Perhaps some of this is new to you, and, and this discussion of Christ's death and our sin and repentance and faith, you've got a lot of questions. That's okay, and it's very understandable. I just want to invite you to talk to us about anything you may have on your mind, any questions you might have. We would be delighted to talk with you today, to set up a time later this week, and discuss more about the truths here that Paul's describing for us. I think it is possible that you're here this morning and you think you're a Christian but have actually never really been reconciled to God. That's possible. Perhaps you were drawn to Christianity because the people are really nice and it struck you as a good way to improve yourself and become a better person. Or perhaps you've identified with Christianity to please your parents or some friends. But in reality, you have never seen the profound offensiveness of your sin to God in your need for personal reconciliation. To some degree... I think that's what's going on with some of the people in the Corinthian church. One of the questions I had as I began studying this passage, I always wondered this. Why Paul is encouraging the Corinthian church to be reconciled to God when at the beginning of both letters, he calls them saints? He describes them as Christians. Wouldn't they have already been reconciled to God? Paul knew that there were those who had identified with the gospel message he taught and were even part of the church. They were people who called themselves Christians, but they were falling away because in reality, they had never been reconciled to God. Paul knew that to be reconciled to God required identifying with both he and his message. The Corinthians then could not rightly claim to have received the grace of God while at the same time rejecting Paul's ministry since God was making His appeal through Paul. Those who began by trusting in Christ but then fell away to embrace another message showed their initial reception of God's grace though it may have appeared genuine at the time was not real. Paul's concerned. He's concerned that those Corinthians who are still siding with his opponents might not actually be genuine Christians. Which is why. Which is why he appeals to them here in chapter 6 of verse 1. This is why he says, we appeal to you, don't receive the grace of God in vain. This is why he says in verse 20, be reconciled to God. I think that receiving God's grace in vain is every bit as much of a danger for us today as it was for the Corinthian church. We must regularly examine our hearts and lives. We must regularly consider the real and present danger of an empty profession in falling away to embrace idols or to embrace another gospel. So, even if you're here this morning and you call yourself a Christian, I think these questions are legitimate. Are you living a life of repentance? Are you trusting in Christ's sacrifice as your only grounds of acceptance by God? Have you been reconciled to God? We've considered here in this text that God is the author of reconciliation. Jesus Christ is the agent of reconciliation. And finally, we consider that we are the ambassadors of the reconciliation. Notice in verse 18, Paul says that through Christ, God has reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. In verse 20, Paul says, Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. So so this ministry Paul's talking about here refers to activity done on behalf of another. Paul regards himself to be authorized as a mediator of God's revelation. Paul is an authorized spokesman for God. He does not act on his own authority, but under the commission of a great power and authority who sent him. Paul's divinely authorized to announce to the world God's terms for peace. There's a book called Telling the Truth, edited by Carson, that includes an excellent chapter by Colin Smith called The Ambassador's Job Description. And in that chapter, he defines an ambassador, the job of an ambassador, really, really clearly. He says an ambassador is a government representative commissioned to serve in a foreign country for the purpose of accurately communicating the position and policies of the government he represents so that the people to whom he speaks will be brought into and kept in a good relationship with the government of the country he serves. The apostles were the first ambassadors for Christ, but they certainly were not the last. Every Christian since then, since them, has been called to this ministry of reconciliation. Now, I know it may be really tempting for you to think that Paul was an ambassador for Christ because he was crazy smart. He was really, really, really good at talking to people. And of course, he was an apostle. But you may think, I'm really none of these things. And even though it's a bit flattering to be considered for this really important position... I think it's going to be best for everyone if I just pass. So this whole ambassador, this whole ambassador thing, it's, just, it's really not for me. It's not my thing. You know, we can't think that. Right? There's no such out. If you have been reconciled to God, you have been given the ministry of reconciliation. Sharing this message of reconciliation isn't for the super-Christian, whatever that is. All Christians have been given this responsibility and privilege. Some may have gifts that are especially suited to this task. But the danger in thinking we don't have the gift of evangelism is the false conclusion that we don't have the responsibility to share the Gospel. We all know that it's not easy, is it? It's not easy to serve as an ambassador for Christ in our postmodern world. You have already discovered, or you will soon discover, that this is a really difficult job. I could probably get a show of hands. As Smith notes, the people we speak to have not visited the country we represent. Some do not accept the authority or existence of the government for which we speak. Others find it difficult to see how our country's policies have anything to do with them anyway. An increasing number question whether there can be any such thing as government policy in the first place. And even if there is, most doubt our ability to describe it accurately. But, he says, the embassy is open and our task is to serve as ambassadors for Christ in post So, as we think about this calling as an ambassador for Christ, I have three considerations that we'll consider. The first is we must proclaim the right message. We must proclaim the right message. An ambassador makes the case for the one who sent him. And so it is absolutely essential that we get the message right. The message of the good news of what God has done through Christ's death and resurrection, it's simple. A child can understand it. But we've got to get it right. The 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 way I most easily remember and the handles that are helpful for me is God, man, Christ, response. God our creator is holy. We rebelled. We sinned against God. But Christ came. Died the death we deserved. Offers the righteousness we don't deserve. And if we respond through repentance and faith, we're saved. God, man, Christ, response. Grab grab one of the two ways to live tracks we have in in the lobby or something like that. And become more familiar with this simple message. And as you become more familiar with it, it will help you have courage and confidence to share the message and to get it right as you talk about it with others. We we must proclaim the right message. Second, we must include a proper appeal. Do you, do you see the appeal here in these verses? Verse 11, Paul's seeking to persuade. And then in, in six one and 2... He's he's appealing. Verse 20, He's imploring. We can't miss that, right? One has said that the rule should be no appeal without proclamation and no proclamation without appeal. It, it, It is certainly possible for our appeal to be unhelpful, isn't it? It's possible for our appeal to actually be harmful. And therefore, I think, the thought of adding an appeal to our proclamation can be a bit scary. Our culture's okay with receiving a message, but, but when there's any sort of pressure that I need to respond to it, that's a whole other ballgame, right? So, so we can approach this with the fear of how will they respond? Will I, will I get a fist in my face? What will they think of me? Or will they ever talk to me Again? Our appeal must be backed by prayer and expressed with wisdom, grace, and love. But we're not fulfilling our role as an ambassador for Christ if all that's there is proclamation. We can never argue people into the kingdom, but they must be convinced of the gospel message. And even though the Spirit's work in that is decisive, He uses our efforts to persuade appeal. And included in this, I think, is a sense of urgency. We should never pressure people to accept the message we share, and we ought to patiently work with anyone who desires to grow in their understanding of the gospel message. It may take a long time for the Spirit to open their eyes, but it's not manipulative or insensitive to bring up the urgent nature of reconciliation. God has created the world. He will bring it to close at judgment. We know God gives life and he takes it away. The time we have is limited. The amount is uncertain. None of us are promised another breath. And so as Deborah says, we must be honest not only about the cost of repentance, but also about the expiration date of the offer. Such honesty compels us to urgency. And in all of this, in our proclamation and in our appeal, there's great encouragement. There is great encouragement to consider that we do not simply speak as God's representative, but that the living Lord speaks directly through us. See that in verse 20. He says, The appeal is God's appeal through Paul. Oh, it's, an, it's a remarkable truth, Stott notes that the same God who worked through Christ to achieve the results of reconciliation now works through us to announce it. What an incredible privilege. It's hard. It's hard and we often fail. But consider that through our own feeble words, God is speaking. God is speaking and this ought to give us courage and this ought to give us great confidence. And then let's remember in this, we're, we're ambassadors of Christ together, right? So, so we need each other's help and accountability, which is why we try to draw attention to this in our own groups. So let's keep laboring together and encouraging one another in this task. We must proclaim the right message. We must include the proper appeal. And then finally, we must live the message of reconciliation. Not quite as explicit. This one's somewhat implied. But but Paul does not simply proclaim the message of Christ's death that brings about reconciliation. He lives it. He lives it himself. His relationship with the Corinthians was strained. And there were a lot of people in the Corinthian church that had issues with each other. So over and over, in both letters, Paul is seeking to reconcile. It seems clear, then, that this ministry of reconciliation involves more than just proclamation and appeal. It requires that we be an active reconciler. As one said, like Christ, a minister of reconciliation plunges into the midst of human tumult to bring harmony out of chaos, reconciliation out of estrangement, and love in the place of hate. And so we must do as much as we can to pursue peace and to mend broken relationships. So when as a husband or wife we're hurt or offended by our mate, we must work towards reconciliation. Divorce is never on the table. It is never an option. As parents... We don't ignore the apparent brawl between siblings in the basement. We intervene. And and over and over we labor to teach our children how to live in right relationship with others. We don't avoid a fellow church member or give them the silent treatment because they did or said something that offended us. At our job, at our school, in our neighborhoods, in our city, wherever we may be, We want to do whatever we can to encourage peace. And wouldn't it be nice? Wouldn't it be nice if we could fix these kind of things? I know many of you long for restored relationships. But we can't, right? It's not ultimately up to us to to fix strained and broken relationships. That's God's work. But we do have a goal. Our goal must always be reconciliation. And no matter how hard it may be, and no matter how long it may take, we must do everything within our power to bring it about. It's really hypocritical and very damaging to the name of Christ for us to claim to be reconciled to God, yet to not value or pursue reconciliation with others. Because while we were His enemy, while we were His enemy, God made peace with us through the blood of the cross. And so in all our relationships, we must do whatever we can to live at peace with others and function to the best of our ability by God's grace as an agent of reconciliation. Stories in our world of reconciliation between people like Francis and Epiphany in Rwanda, those stories warm our hearts. And those stories even make it into the news. But the best stories, the best stories of human reconciliation are but a shadow They are merely a reflection of the greatest story of all. God reconciling Himself to sinful man. God is the author of this reconciliation. He takes the initiative. Jesus Christ is the agent of this reconciliation. God has made peace with us through the blood of the cross, where Christ took our sin and gave us His righteousness. We must be reconciled to God. But that can only happen through the response of repentance of sin in faith in Christ Jesus. In the ministry, the the, the sharing of this message of reconciliation is ours. We're ambassadors for Christ called to proclaim the message with an appeal, and to live in a way that rightly represents and reflects our reconciliation with God. So Father, we we praise You for taking the initiative in reconciling us to Yourself. That is Your love and mercy alone. We praise You for that. Jesus Christ, we thank You for willingly taking our sin so that we might have Your righteousness. I pray, Lord, for any here this morning who is yet to embrace the message of reconciliation in Christ. I ask that You would grant them the gift of repentance from their sin and the gift of faith to trust and believe in the Gospel message. And Father, as we consider our duty, our responsibility, our privilege of representing you in a lost and dying world, we ask that we be faithful. Father, may we find hope and confidence knowing that it is you speaking through us. And Father, may we have courage to speak when we should. And Lord, may we, in, in, in lots of ways, even then those ways that don't involve words, just in how we live, may we reflect to others the reconciliation You offer us in Christ. It's in His name we ask all these things. Amen.